Today, when something goes wrong with a computer, we have a go-to name for it, a bug. It's a figure of speech, obviously. There isn't an actual bug living in your laptop wreaking havoc. But back in the 1940s, at the dawn of the computing age, this situation could be a bit more literal. I'm Amanda McGowan, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. And today, we're heading to the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. We'll visit the world's first actual computer bug and learn about the trailblazing computer scientist Grace Hopper, whose work still shapes the way we use computers and talk about them, even today. That's after this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. My village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. On the National Mall, just a quick hop away from the Washington Monument, is the Smithsonian Museum of American History. And inside its archives tucked in a storage case, is what appears at first glance to be an unassuming little graph paper notebook. But there's something surprising and maybe even a little gross inside of it. The page that has a little, how shall we say this most politely, um, distressed looking bug, moth, scotch taped to the page of the book. This is Peggy Kidwell. She's curator of mathematics and acting curator of computers at the Smithsonian. And next to it, it says in ink, first actual case of bug being found. When I call Peggy up to ask about this little logbook, she tells me that to understand this artifact, we have to go back in time a bit. And there's somebody that I have to meet. Her name is Grace Murray Hopper. Grace Hopper was born in 1906, and even as a kid, she always liked tinkering with machines. When she was seven, Grace took apart her alarm clock to look at its cogs and gears and see how it worked. When she couldn't put it back together again, she dismantled all the other alarm clocks in the house, too. Her mother reportedly was like, oh, honey, this is great, but in the future, maybe just focus on one clock at a time. Grace went on to college to study math. And by the 1930s, when Grace was in her 30s, 
She had gotten a master's and a PhD and was teaching math at Vassar in upstate New York. But then December of 1941 rolled around, the attack on Pearl Harbor. A date which will live in infamy. The U.S. entered World War II, and the Navy rolled out a new program which allowed women to serve in non-combat roles. The idea was to free up the men who had been in these jobs so that they could go overseas. Grace wanted in, but at first the Navy said she was too old, too small, and that her position as a math professor was too important to the war effort. But eventually the Navy relented, and they sent Grace to Harvard to work on an experimental machine. It was called the Mark I. It was a large room-sized metal device with little rotors like relays that were used in telephone circuitry of the day. It had many large, heavy pieces that are quite different from what most people would think of a computer looking like. The Mark I was basically a giant calculator. It was used to work out rocket trajectories and later math problems related to the development of the atomic bomb. The Mark I contained over 500 miles of cable and weighed five tons. Grace said while it was running, it made a sound like a thousand knitting needles clacking together. What was groundbreaking about the Mark I was that it was programmable, meaning you could tell it what to do by feeding it instructions. They wrote it all out on paper sheets and then um, punched these long paper tapes, maybe two and a half inches wide, but they were long, long tapes. And you, you, would, you would write a program on one or more rolls and that would be fed into the machine. This became Grace's job, communicating with the machine, which was not easy to do. I mean, everybody was figuring out that they were spending as much time writing the programs and rewriting the programs and rewriting the programs a third time because these machines would only do what you told them to so that if you didn't say it exactly right, you had to straighten them out. Hopper and the other engineers working on the Mark I kept logbooks detailing everything that they did, including all of the many things that went wrong. And if you look through Grace's logbooks, you can see all of these like cool doodles that she made. And many of them look like bugs. They're funny little creatures. I mean, one of them looks a little like a caterpillar. My favorite is this little worm creature that looks like the Mark I's long punch hole filled programming tapes. Hopper in her drawing labels one of those tapeworm because if your program has an error in it, it's not going to run your computer right. Calling a problem with a machine a bug actually wasn't a new thing. In fact, the term was first used in inventing circles all the way back in the days of Thomas Edison. But nobody had really used the term in computing before because computers hadn't existed before. It was a new use of a term for a new technology. The Cutting Edge Mark I project was so successful that Harvard had Hopper and the other engineers work on a new version, the Mark II. And on the afternoon of September 9, 1947, the engineers were testing the Mark II when the machine suddenly stopped. They checked it out and found something kind of surprising inside. Not just a theoretical bug, but an actual dead moth. So they took it out and taped it into their logbook with the caption, First actual case, 
of bug being found. After the war ended, jobs in the military for women in STEM, like the one that Grace had, began to disappear. The Navy booted Grace from active duty, along with thousands of other women who had joined up for the war effort. Grace was able to keep working on the Mark I and II under a short-term research fellow contract at Harvard. But she left that after a few years when it became clear that they would not promote a woman to a permanent full-time position, even though Grace had quite literally written the manual on how to use the Mark I. But she was determined to keep working with computers, so Grace landed a job at a private company. Around this time, she started thinking about the idea of communicating with computers and how difficult it had been to give instructions to the Mark I and Mark II. There was a big concern that she had that languages should not just be holes on paper tape, that you really had to understand every detail of the machine to write them, but they should look something like English. So you could write ad as opposed to doing it all in symbols. In the early 1950s, Grace started working on the first compiler, which converted English language commands into a language that the machine could understand. The idea took off, and by the late 1950s, Grace thought there should be one universal programming language that all computers and all of the people who programmed them could use. So in 1959, she joined a conference of programmers, and together, they worked to develop something called COBOL, which was called the Common Business Language. She had a lot to do with testing COBOL and demonstrating that you could indeed run it on several different kinds of computers. In the 60s, the Navy recalled Grace to active duty to help standardize their computer systems. And by the 1970s, COBOL, the language that she helped pioneer, became the most widely used programming language in the world. But let's go back for a second to the little distressed moth taped into the logbook. Because Grace thought that language was really important, and not just the language that you would use to communicate with computers. She also wanted people to be able to easily understand concepts related to computers. She wanted it to be easy for people to understand how to talk about computers. So she thought there should be a shared vocabulary in that space, too. That's why in the 1950s, she wrote a glossary of computing terms. And one of them was the term bug. She also did a lot to popularize that term. And this was, again, part of an effort to get a language that computer programmers across a range of machines could use and write in and produce useful programs for people. Back at the Smithsonian, Peggy says the logbook is an object in the collection that she gets a ton of questions about, especially from people in the computer programming world, where the term bug is still used today. Over the years, a bit of an urban legend has sprung up around the logbook, that Grace invented the term bug out of whole cloth based on this little moth. We know that that is not totally true. Instead, the logbook shows Hopper's skill with communicating complicated ideas in a language that everybody could understand. When you're an engineer, you want to be able to suggest to the people who have hired you that although there are problems, they're small and they can be overcome. And one way that you can do this 
is you can say, oh, it's only a bug or it's a fly in the ointment. But you can make it sound as though something which may look temporarily disastrous is only temporarily disastrous. And one way to do that is by giving it the name of something that is usually pretty easy to deal with, like a bug, as opposed to a dinosaur or a monster. Because the logbook is pretty fragile, it's currently not on display. But you can explore high-res photos of it online, along with its little moth, at AmericanHistory.si.edu. Special thanks to Peggy Kidwell for telling me the story of Grace Hopper, the logbook, and the moth. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Baudelaire Seuss, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Tanaka Maria Muvavaridua, Ellie Katz. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was mixed by Luce Fleming. You can find more information at atlasobscura.com. There is a link in our episode description. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall, and I'm Amanda McGowan, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I'll see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.